Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business model, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunane Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, synthetic biology, and more, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is free education until you start your career. Our guest is Ariel Camus, CEO and co-founder of Microverse. In this conversation, we talk about trust, the essence of education, and about scaling learning. If you're new to the show, you can consult futurized.org slash episodes, where you can find collections of our favorite episodes organized by topic. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or want an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, please go to futurized.org slash store. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org. Thank you so much. Let's begin. Ariel, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, let's see. I mean, you've you've done some some interesting things. I wanted uh, to cover that first. You you're from Argentina, obviously, and then uh, immigrated to Europe uh, when you were uh, right before your teen teens with your parents. And uh, I think you've told me and other podcasts that you know there was a financial crisis in Argentina at the time, and. Uh, you made some reflections uh, throughout the, the last decade about that, and and uh, I'm I'm interested because, you know, where where you're born is very important, right? For many many reasons. It is um, today. It is, and uh, I, I mean, I guess it will continue to be important. But uh, you're adamant that it shouldn't determine your educational choices. Is that something? That kind of dawned on you as you were in Europe, getting your master's degree, I guess, in tel- telco engineering at uh, Polytechnico Madrid, and uh, you realized that you were getting different opportunities, perhaps better than you would have if you had stayed in Argentina at the time. I don't think it was in uh, in Europe where I got my my bachelor's and my master's degree that I had that realization. It, it happened a little bit later in my life. As I moved to San Francisco, lived there for a few years, sold my first business there, and then I had a chance to spend one month teaching in Burundi where I got to see a very different type of education. It was a private university, so still for very privileged people within the context of a country that is uh, quite poor, you know, in the, for the standards of the world, unfortunately. and. Most of the teachers were international teachers that who were working as volunteers, and very often they either had to cancel their trips to be able to teach, or their flights got delayed, and then students were there just doing nothing. They went back home those days, 
and uh, they were wasting a lot of their you know time. And I come from a country where public education is actually really good in Argentina, right? Uh, even though it is like a developing country, but education and in general Latin America has a really good public education system. So it's not so much, it's not that we can say, oh, the developing world has worse education. I think education is so much more than the quality of the university or the quality of, you know, your schools. It's everything that makes you who you are. And of course, it starts with your, with your parents, with your family, with your friends and the relationships that you make in your life and your society. And I always talk about this example of my wife also comes from uh, Latin America, from El Salvador. But when uh, she was 14, her parents applied to a scholarship that allowed her to spend an entire summer in a camp with students, uh, with, with like teenage from teenagers from like, I think, a hundred different countries, right? And that is something that in my parents' mind is not that they couldn't have done for me. It's that they, they just didn't even know that that was a possibility. Hmm. So I think that the surrounding where you are born, where you are developing who you are, it determines your subjective version of what's possible of reality, right? So school, universities, they play a big role in shaping that reality, but they're just a part. And I think having the opportunity to spend time in Argentina, in Europe, in San Francisco, then in Burundi, then I lived uh, for a year between Indonesia and Vietnam, and getting to see all these different kind of little bubbles of realities and seeing the most extreme ones, right? The Burundi one and the San Francisco, California one, they, they made me realize why if we have talent that is universal, that is evenly distributed in the world, and if we have massive opportunities that happen to be very concentrated, so they are not evenly distributed, why are we not matching those two realities? Why are we not, on one hand, making people more aware that the opportunities exist and that there is a path for those opportunities to how do we get companies to tap into that distributed talent? And three, how do we bring the barriers down so that connecting talent and opportunities doesn't require paying the huge price of immigration that my parents had to pay? To pay? And that's where remote work, in my view, comes in. But, you know, that's a different uh, topic. So, so it's interesting to me that the first company you started, Tourist Eye, was a mobile app for planning trips. So you were still in the mindset of figuring out where to travel, how to travel, what to do when you travel. And then you, now, you, and then you grew that and sold it to Lonely Planet, of course. And, uh, you know, that, so that's a big travel company. But it seems to me that you're taking kind of the concept of intellectual travel, I guess, to a, to a whole different level, thinking that it's not just traveling as a tourist that is, uh, you know, the point here, you feel like basically education and travel can go together and it's a, but it's a community. So you don't necessarily have to travel so much. And I, I guess we'll get Correct. to your startup in a second. It's not the travel itself. It's the exposure to alternate realities at deep enough levels, I guess, of exposure that you really start to potentially, I guess, imagine other realities, meet other people, you know, have true networks and friendships, I guess, also, um, because there's this notion of peer-to-peer -peer that I know you care about deeply. Tell me a little bit about um, how it was that you then got to start 
Your Company Microverse, which is an online school for remote software developers. But the business model is what attracted, I guess, me uh, to talk to you because you don't charge people until they get hired. I, th that is obviously the, a very distinctive feature of your business. It's interesting. It's somewhat risky, I would think. Um, and it shifts the risk, perhaps, over to you, but perhaps not. So I'm curious, how did you come upon this pretty unique business model? And um, w what does it ch change for people who join uh, Microverse? And, and what is it about Microverse that distinguishes it in terms of its educational mission and, and, and you know, what happens there? It's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, the, this model based on income share agreements, which is this mechanism, right? It's not unique to us. There are like other schools that did it before. There are other schools doing it today. But we are still the first and only school that is doing that globally. Right. And that started from this place of looking at the world and seeing how much unrealized human potential we are wasting and trying to figure out a way to really develop that potential and to connect it to the global economy. And uh, the peer-to-peer -peer model that we have came after that. The ISA model, the way of finance and education came after that. Both things came as answers to the question of how do we make a world-class education scale so that it can truly reach every talented human being in the world and how can we make it accessible so that every talented human being can access it regardless of the subjective reality where they were born, right? So I think the first memory that I have of an income share agreement, I think it was Guild Education from Berkeley in the Bay Area that used it. They, they ended up shutting down for other reasons, other complications. And Lambda School also like made it very popular in the US. But the whole narrative has always been like very U.S. driven, right? Mm -hmm. Where the you know the the, the loans like the like universal loan system is completely you know um, it's a nightmare, right? And there is this desire for new ways of financing education. Public education is not great, but then you go to other places like Africa and you realize that great education is not even accessible like it's not just financially that it doesn't exist there is no alternative even if you can afford getting a loan but loans are not a possibility so you have to think differently and in this income share agreement model what matters is one students don't pay anything up front and secondly they only pay if after completing the program or you know as a consequence of the program they get a job where they get paid much more than they did before in our case, because our audience is students in Latin America, in Africa, Southeast Asia, Middle East, we set that threshold at $1,000 a month, which is like two to three times the local average. So on average, our graduates have a salary increase of around 300% by going to our program. And only when that happens is that we charge them based on a percentage of their salary. But what it does is, it, as you said, it changes, uh, like it aligns the incentives of the system because the school only makes money if the student is getting a huge return in their investment in their own education. And so here's yeah. the immediate 
question I have to this, Ariel, because if you think about any old U.S. Uh, elite university, an Ivy League or any any university that's very selective, they do a version of what you're doing in the sense that they take then, uh, they have a certain quota of, of students that are really kind of alternative background, but then they choose the absolute very best, of course, because they they want to make a bet on and perhaps, you know, pay uh, some fees for certain categories of students. It makes them look good. It, it's a social mission. But then when they do that, they pick the absolute best. So here's my, I guess, question to you. How do you select these students? And is there not a chance that, you know, in the beginning, before you scale, you might be able to attract a very, very high level, academic level, and perhaps entrepreneurial level? I don't know, whoever gets job offers afterwards, right? You, you have a formula for that. But as you scale, doesn't that become trickier? to still uh, pick the cream of the crop. And also, you know, if it is a social mission, how do you avoid only picking the top uh, of the top? Because honestly, that's not such a social mission, if you know what I'm saying. If it's an inherent critique of the way that the Ivy League schools approach this is that they pick people who might, you know, in their local economies have been on the top of the ladder anyway. So yes, now they have a Harvard education. They would have some other education and they would be the top 1% in their uh, culture or company or, you know, whatever, either way, because they are clever people who tend to rise to the top. So again, I'm just trying to give you a little hard time here because I want to have a discussion that's a little bit more nuanced than, you know, like you have this wonderful thing that is obviously, it sounds so fantastic. Have you thought about the dynamics of your model over time? No, those are great questions, and I love that you are going that that deep uh, in your thinking and in your questions. So yes, we think about this the whole time, and one of the most important lessons that we have learned is that you can't help everybody. We have tried in the past, you know, accepting students from very different, you know, let's say types of personas, talking from a product point of view, people who could join full-time, people who could join part-time, people who started full-time, but then they had some financial difficulties and they had to move uh, part-time, people who were more, you know, developed in their soft skills work more globally, people who maybe didn't have such a strong English level to join the global economy. And what we learned is like, we can't help everybody yet because uh, coming from a product development background, when you try to build a product for everybody, you end up making an, you know, a mediocre job with everything you do. So we said, okay, who are the people that we can help today? And the people that we can help today is people who speak uh, English, who can join full time, who have a little bit of previous coding experience, who have the financial support to join our product for a year. And of course, that is, you know, 1% or less of the population. Now, there are two sides to your question. There's the, the elitism uh, side, and there's like, is there enough, let's say, talent out there? Mm -hmm. To the latter one, we're talking about 90%, 90 to 95% of the world not having access to higher education, right? The amount right. of underserved potential talent out there, like talent to be realized out there, it's so massive. And by going globally from day one at school, we're very far away from, you know, kind of um, like getting every single person uh, into the program. So yes, that's Maria, let, let me just be very specific. I 
believe that your mission is positive from that perspective because clearly you know having had british and american uh software developers majority over the last 30 years build all of our software systems is clearly not the way to go so let me just be very clear <laughs> you uh, are bringing in a very very much needed diversity to the pool of developers so that is pretty clear i'm just saying that clearly you have to pick the students that have the highest chance of success absolutely so you pick no and, and I, I was answering you. to the second thing right you asked yes. are you going to run out of great people and the answer is right. no because there are right. so many great people who don't have an opportunity today second are you selecting only great people the answer is yes great people that we can help today and i'll give an example of how this will develop over time I mentioned several requirements, English level, full-time availability, financial support, previous coding experience, you need to be interested in learning to code, all those things. We are, for example, right now launching a new module for people who have no previous experience whatsoever, so that even if you've never considered getting into tech, you still have the chance without having to pay anything up front. We are experimenting with uh, cash advances, where we give you money in advance so that you can afford joining the program, so that then at the end you will pay back only if you are successful first right eventually we'll start launching a program that starts in spanish in arabic in french portuguese uh, that teaches you english in parallel but yes it is always matching the two realities the reality of the market and what the market is hiring and the reality of the talent there is a massive gap between those two things and i'm not saying that we will anytime soon get to the model where every human being will have a software engineering job making 100k a year. That is not developer position. Developer position is how do we make that gap smaller by bringing opportunities and talent closer together and then removing layers of this puzzle one by one so that we can open this to more and more and more people. And today it's software engineering, but it could be other slightly less qualified or less complex jobs, like maybe we can be less um, demanding on what we're selecting, but still covering a demand from the more privileged side of the world. It is finding these intersections where there is a big opportunity. And because of the size of the problems that we have, the size of the markets and the size of the talent pool that is untapped, there's still a long way to go. But yes, you have to be very careful at selecting the right people that you can help today. So currently, you do not have direct relationship with employers, do you? Is that that's not currently part of the model? You simply teach people and then give them a diploma and skills, and then they have to find the job themselves. Or am I wrong? We have relationships with employers, but by design, we have been able to have a ninety-five percent employment rate without needing those relationships. We we always say we are a school, so what we do is we train the people to be able to have lifelong skills to always continue growing in their career. And a lot of this, and it's by far the most expensive part of the program for us to run, is how do we coach students to be great at you know crafting their resumes, their stories, at interviewing, at negotiating their salaries. And by focusing on that, by focusing on what we wanted to be really good at, which is education, we were able to empower students to get great results without us having to be the ones looking for the jobs for them, right? You are giving them more freedom. As we scale, 
it is key to start developing relationships with like the big employers, the big brands, so that one, we can get students faster to jobs, to better jobs, but also so that we can show a message to the world that, hey, these big companies are hiring because there's a great talent in this network. You should be hiring as well. But again, it's not because students will need it. It's because it will help build the brand of uh, the quality of the talent that we're trying to create to bring to the network. Tell me a bit more on, about the curriculum because you, you talk about a peer-to-peer -peer model, uh, emphasizing collaboration, and and then you talk about all of these business savvy skills or like, you know, protecting your own, uh, you know, investment, I guess, in, in sort of teaching them to be more street savvy and, and better, uh, you know, at communicating and all that stuff. What is different with your curriculum from, I guess, any old computer science uh, curriculum at a community college or anywhere? I mean, there are many places you can get coding skills these days. Yeah, and we, we always encourage people to go and try to learn on their own first. You know, we even provide this of like, like free resources. And then we say, if you realize that you are not moving fast enough, that you're getting distracted, that you're getting sidetracked, that you're getting, you know, frustrated, that's where we come in. We started with the assumption that content, learning content is a commodity. And what we built was the layers around that content to provide accountability, to provide support, and to do that in a way that it's outcomes oriented. Because if they don't get to a job, we don't get paid. So um, the way this peer-to-peer -peer model works is that you have there are like two layers. There's like the human layer, uh, and then there's like the let's say the software layer. So in the human layer, you have peers in different structures. You have your morning team, you have a stand-up team, you have a, a, a groups of smaller groups of people that you will build code and projects with during the day and those teams are being shuffled and reshuffled every single week and you have deadlines every single week so the design principle around that is that education shouldn't look differently than a job our best compliment that we get from the students is i just started my new job and it feels like another day at my career right in the more traditional academic world there is a big shift from being a student to being an employee that many people struggle with. But because we only make money, the students get a job, we have to think differently. How do we do it so that we're maximizing the chance of getting a job? So the first difference is that we will be tweaking the curriculum daily, not quarterly, not yearly, daily, to make sure that we are adjusted to what the market is demanding, right? Why do we have that information? Because we are... Uh, incentivize students so because if we're not talking to employers, we don't know what employers want, which means we can't get students to get those jobs. Secondly, unlike a traditional school, at Microsoft people, students spend eight hours a day in a collaborative environment where everything they do is through collaboration with peers from all around the world. And that, which is there by design, is the perfect environment to teach the professional skills that have nothing to do with coding. Is how do you work with people who are from a different culture, who have a different accent, who are in a different time zone? How do you get really good at that? The environment creates the perfect mess for all those collaboration challenges to arise daily, you know, every minute, actually. And then we complement the technical training with what we call professional skills training on how do you deal with all these challenges. But it's always done 
with an approach that is that flips the system around and puts projects and puts people first and then comes the content so we take the market needs we design the learning goals and objectives and then we create projects that mimic the real world and then students work collaboratively collaboratively multiculturally on those projects and then for each project we curate existing learning material to help them to guide them through that process some of that material is technical so that material is for the soft skills and the professional skills so by the end you have both the elements that you need to get to these type of international jobs ariel you uh you started i guess really training people in 2001 and you trained 500 and then you trained uh, or, or you're on your way to train 2000 people uh, this year and aiming for 5000 next year and then your hairy goal is to train a million people within a decade or so or something correct doubling every year um so i mean right now the scale is moderate right but you have learned something so here's my question what do you think you have to teach other schools in other domains or indeed if you were to advise um, the community college system what are their challenges i mean the obvious ones being retention and uh, and the fact that you know not not everybody graduates and, and and you seem to be addressing some of those things what do you think that overall education system at, at this level, you know, wh what do they do wrong? Not leveraging peer-to-peer -peer learning. Peer-to-peer mm. -peer is what I constantly hear or see the reaction of people when in any educational setting, I talk about the work they're doing, everybody's like, like immediately like attracted, like, wait, you are doing everything based on peer-to-peer? -peer? Tell me more about it. We tried it and we couldn't figure it out. I'll give you some examples. The director of the elementary school that I attended in Argentina when I was little, she has recently switched to a peer-to-peer -peer model after our conversations. Earlier today, I interviewed a um, product professional from a late-stage edtech company who was telling me I tried interviewing peer-to-peer, -peer. we couldn't make it work at scale. I yesterday read an article from someone I used to work at Lonely Planet, who is the head career coach at, at a coding bootcamp in the US. And he sent me a message last night saying, Ariel, everything I'm doing right now, I am borrowing inspiration from the work that you are doing on peer-to-peer -peer learning. This is the thing that we keep hearing again and again and again. The most surprising part to people is not just that we have figured out how to make it work from a pedagogical point of view, but that we have figured out how to scale it so that it's no need for human interaction from our side to make it work. It is purely this peer-to-peer -peer interactions plus the software layer that is orchestrating the whole system. And right now we have the 2,000 students going through the program this year who don't need us to intervene and of course we have a support team for like access like you know problem access to tools and stuff like that but for the daily experience there is no need because the software is holding them accountable tracking their attendance reshuffling the working groups providing feedback making sure that the co-reviewers the project reviewers who are peers are getting accountability that they are being you know their quality of their work is being monitored that we integrate the peer to be ratings to decide who to pair to who all of this is what it took us like you know, a few years to develop. This is what we 
can teach the world about. So, I mean, you're cracking a nut that's really difficult in many online systems, you know, motivation over time. And really, I mean, even people trying to launch social networks, right? They're like the, the virality that people talk about. Really, what it is, is just... Uh, can you incentivize people to engage not just with the platform because who cares about the platform they want to engage with friends with peers with others and you seem to be cracking that somehow and you talk about tracking feedback accountability but also pairing in a, a very conscious way how do you pair people and when you say peers do you mean like teams of two people or is it bigger teams all all of that so uh, by the way, I will. You're absolutely right. You were absolutely right before that it all starts with the quality of the people that you select. In a peer to peer environment, if you select people who, for example, might be equally capable from an intellectual point of view, but they don't have the same capacity to commit to the same number of hours or level of focus, the relationship is not going to work out, right? Like imagine working with a coworker who only works two hours a day, you're working eight hours a day but you are being paid the same and expect, you know, like, and, and your success depends on the other person. You're not going to be very happy about that. So like selecting the right people and keeping the right people in the school, it's key for, for, for this uh, to work. Um, sorry, I lost track of the initial question. Well, I mean, I, 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 well, first of all, I think, you know, I'm, I'm just still curious about the pairing process and how you pair pairing, people yes. up. But it's sort of, it, it does, I guess, you know, boil down to can it truly work at scale and I you know modestly I would say that you can't really say that it work at scale well at scale at a thousand people yes but what these people who are saying we couldn't make it work at scale I'm assuming they're talking about tens of thousands of students so my question is simply how do you know that this will work at scale when perhaps you know the quality of your students goes down even like 20% maybe the commitment level because you're now becoming a bit of a brand they apply to it for all kinds of reasons maybe they think they will get a lot out of it you know without investing a lot all of it right in any school system it boils down to what kind of individual attention do you feel you're getting from the system the teachers or the peers right so in a private school in America, if you pay, uh, you know, up the wall, you will get so much attention that even a, you know, an average to good student will feel so motivated that they will do pretty well. So again, I'm just again questioning: How do you know that this can truly work at scale? What is the magic of this pairing process? It's not in the pairing itself. It's in how do you get people to show equal level of uh, and maintain equal level of commitment and then how do you organize structures that can keep people motivated accountable uh, and receiving feedback that is high quality but it's still being delivered by by the peers and no most schools try this at the scale of like 20 30 people and don't get it to work it's really hard to do even at small scale the reason i say it's working at scale is because the more students you get the better it's working the better the pairings, the better, the most optimal the structures that we can introduce to, to deliver the right type of thing. So, for example, we can introduce an onboarding mentor because we have enough peers in the system. So now, like in a job, you're getting someone to kind of motivate you when you just join the school and you're confused, like in any job. We were able to go from just having you with one coding partner 
with whom, you know, when we were, there were like 10 students in the school, we had five teams of two people each. But what if two of them didn't get along? Well, first we said, well, that's part of the challenge here. You're not going to choose your coworkers. I mean, you, you have to choose the right culture that you join, but you're not going to choose any coworker. So you have to learn to work with people who are not your best friends. But what if at that point that really breaks and, you know, there's no way those people can work together? Well, when we had only 10 students, we said, sorry, that's it. You know, we can give your money back or you can continue working alone, but that's kind of not the point of my course. Well, today we can do repairings almost in real time after they went through a process where they have to try to make it work in the relation because it's part of, of the learning. We were able to go from groups of just, you know, your coding partner, which is what we did at the beginning, to now having your morning team with whom you practice soft skills and you provide morning accountability to get started in the day early. You have your stand-up team where you set goals and talk about blockers and help each other build your network. Then you have in the core hours, like seven hours in the middle, you have a team that like rotates every week. Sometimes it's a learning partner. You're building the same project in parallel and helping each other out. Sometimes it's a coding partner, like in the old days, you're doing programming. But then we're scaffolding the learning through increased levels of complexity when it comes to project management. So we introduce group dynamics of three people, four people, five people, by the end of the program, it's up to six people. And there, you do have to divide the work. You have to then help each other, but on each on their own work. And then you merge it together and you deliver and you present a project as a team. So like, these are things that we couldn't do before. Now we can do that, which means we can adjust every need and every learning goal or we can adjust each peer-to-peer structure to the right learning goal or the, the right objective. And you can see this in our completion rate that went from a 40-something percent to almost 70%. You can see these in our net promoter score, which went from 55 to 60 with the previous version of the program to being at around 75 to 85 every week right now. And we measure this with every single student. It's a mandatory step every week. So like the more students we have, the easier it gets to actually work on all these pairing structures in a way that you can systematically guarantee that everybody will have a consistent experience. Hmm. Ariel, how did you develop your own pedagogy? Has this just sort of developed as you went along? I mean, you, surely you weren't a perfect educator when you came out of school, you know, in like a regular university where, you know, you would have to do an enormous amount of reflection to get to where you are now. And, and as you have illustrated, right, a lot of experimentation and tracking yourself. As a company, you track all these things and you, I'm sure you experiment. But, uh, uh, and you speak of scaffolding, right, which is a big sort of uh, principle in, in good pedagogy. How did all of this evolve? So I'll tell you a few stories. Uh, the first one is from this director of my elementary school. Uh, she sent me a message a few months ago. Ariel, I just saw an article of yours. I'm very proud. And I still remember the day at the age of 10 that you taught our uh, teachers how to use Word and Excel. I offered at the age of 10 courses to my classmates, and I didn't charge the teachers, by the way, on how to use Word and Excel, right? Then when I was in college, there were a few things that college was not teaching, uh, namely web development. You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that was not a common thing. So I decided to launch my own courses in, inside the university to teach, you know, PHP, MySQL, these technologies. Then it came the Burundi experience, right? And I got to see other, you know, 
more deficient like learning models. And that's what kind of like piqued my, my curiosity. And I started thinking, okay, this is something that I feel really passionate about. I want to develop it. And the Burundi experience was in 2013. I didn't launch my course until 2017. Between those, in those five years, all I did was to read, talk, and think about education the whole day. I remember we were in Morocco in a vacation with my wife, and she told me, like, Ariel, we have spent the 10 days driving around. We have just talked about education, and you keep not writing things down. Please take notes of all your thoughts because we keep going in circles around the same ideas. And always she complains about that. Um, the day that I met her, uh, my wife, we were in these like Spanish-speaking nights, and I didn't talk to her almost at all. I spent the whole night talking to a guy from Stanford who was you know, a teacher, and we were talking about pedagogy. I think the most, one of the most important moments was uh, coming across the, the Wikipedia article of uh, the Bloom's Two Sigma problem. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Please explain it for my uh, listeners, yes. Yeah, so it is, it is a, a piece of research, I think it was from the 60s, where they basically work with a lot of different schools in the U.S. trying to understand the impact of having a dedicated uh, teacher or coach in a one-on-one -on -one way for students. And they realized that compared to the traditional instructional system of having one teacher for like 20, 30, 40 students, students who had a dedicated mentor had uh, grades that on average were two standard deviation higher than those that didn't have that, that instructional approach. So for example, if the average class got a Z, the people with the, the, the dedicated one-on-one -on -one mentors got an A on average. And the reason it's called Bloom's Two Sigma problem is that the researcher's last name was Bloom, and that the problem is how do you get to those results with a model that actually scales and is actually realistic. Because having a dedicated one-on-one -on -one teacher is not even realistic in the developed world. Imagine if we want to bring that to the developing world. So one, uh, there is a table, I, I mean, I, I haven't looked in a while at the Wikipedia article, but there used to be a table comparing the results on the uh, efficacy of the different instructional methodologies. And one of them was collaborative learning. And I remember clicking there and saying, okay, this is going to be fun. And, you know, that was uh, one of the, uh, after Burundi, I think that was the second aha moment of like, well, that was the third. The other one was the realization of remote work as the bridge between talent and opportunities. And the third one was that Wikipedia article. So yes, I've spent uh, basically since 2012 thinking about this problem. It's been 10 years, even though the company officially launched in 2018. You know, when people hear that story, I guess founders should, uh, I mean, should take away from this that it's not just your formal uh, education or your pitch deck or something. I mean, this is something that you had been passionately working on for a long time. Look, let's switch gears for a little bit. This is uh, fascinating. I just wanted uh, here towards the end to talk a little bit about the future. So EdTech, you clearly, uh, you know, you're making your uh, motion here in EdTech. What do you see for the future of this sector? What what do you think uh, will happen here? Is um, the current trends going to be uh, contracting now that people are going a little bit back to to sort of work? Will remote work and remote education still be this thing that everyone right after the pandemic said, oh, we're all going to be remote. We're going to do all of this. Um, 
yeah, so what are some of the opportunities and some of the limitations that you have experienced through your, your company and, and learnings? So at the, well, I'm going to start long-term and macro level. The more that we evolve as a society, the more complex the problems that we have to solve become, the more that we need an approach that is global to solve them, the more that we go in the global direction, the more dependencies that we create. And at some point, it's not just a matter of having big problems that we really depend on each other for our countries to do well. And the countries that will do the best, this is my opinion, given the types of problems that we are facing, are those economies, those countries, those leaders who understand the importance of global collaboration and global leadership. Now, from this perspective, and understanding that the problems are getting larger and larger and larger, we're going to need more talented human beings working on these problems. And we barely have enough. We don't have enough developers in the U.S. to you know, cover enough uh, of the available jobs. If we expand this globally, the shortage of developers, for example, it's massive. And it's not just developers. It's across all these like, knowledge worker positions because there are a lot of opportunities. And this digital transformation that we're seeing in the world is just getting started. So that even if it's today, the market is going through like a downturn and, you know, companies might be slowing down hiring or something, then that is just at the, you know, it's a very short-sighted thing that is happening. In the long term, this is going to be a tiny blip that will barely be visible if you were to draw, you know, a line of how the, you know, growth in professional technology, knowledge worker careers are, is, is growing. So we're going in that direction. And because there's such massive shortage of, of, of talent, the companies that are the best at being able to tap into high quality talent are going to be at a massive advantage when it comes to solving the problems, generating value and creating big businesses. So then you have to ask yourself, how do I maximize my chances of getting great talent to as much talent as possible? And an obvious answer is hire globally, right? Maybe you don't go globally from day one. Maybe you go from, hey, let's hire remotely inside the U.S., but not just in our town. Or maybe you say, hey, let's go through the same time zone. So I'm in the U.S. Let's also hire in Mexico and Latin America. Let's not go to also Europe and Africa. You know. But the more you go to global, the more people you have, also the more diversity that you have, which means more innovation, which means more empathy to solve some of these problems that are global in nature that require different perspectives coming together to truly reach a solution. You know, climate change is an example of, of that. So I think that we're just getting started here. Yes, there will be blips in the, in the line of history, uh, but I think the overall long-term direction to me is very clear. And I think the challenge is that at the end of the day, we are still social creatures. We crave human connection, right? In remote, if you don't do it well, and to a certain extent, there's just so much you can do about it, you won't get the same level of human connection that you get as when you are all in person. And some people crave that more than others. Some people uh, might not have as much social interaction in in their lives outside of work 
many people who are single, many people who are more on the introvert side of things. There are so many you know, types of personas here that, that fit that category. I mean, there's absolutely not, nothing wrong with that work. It's such a massive part of our life. It, it's reasonable to expect human connection there. So you can do a lot as a remote organization to help people connect. We are doing so much and it's beautiful to see it happening, but it's never going to be the same. So some people are like, I want an office. And some people are like, I want remote. I don't ever want to go back to the office. So companies who are in the middle, if you want to maximize your talent acquisition efforts, then you have to go with this hybrid approach. But hybrid is the hardest because it's really hard to build an experience. You know, the same as with our learning experience, it's really hard to build an experience and offering a job, building a culture, it's building experience. It's really hard to build one that works for very two different use cases. So like, or to put it in a different way, it's not impossible, but it's much easier just to do it for people who are working remotely or just to do it for people who are in the office. So this challenge of potentially giving up on going after both groups of people, it's, it's a tough decision to make. We made it at Microsoft and we decided we will just go with people who can work remotely. We will then create a lot of education internally and structures, rituals to you know, to foster human connection, we will then incentivize people in our management approach so that they are also uh, creating human connections outside of work and prioritizing that. But, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a challenge because we need that. And in education, it's the same thing. Will education become fully remote? No, definitely not. You know, those amazing campuses are not going uh, anywhere because developing yourself as a human being, you know, being going from a teenager to becoming a young adult and having the freedom of, you know, living on your own for your first time. That's an important experience or part of growing up. Those relationships that you build, the skills that you build, that's not going anywhere. It's necessary. I think that the way in which virtual and physical converge will have to change. We're, for example, thinking about co-learning spaces. I always dream with this, you know, uh, we have done a little experiment in Zambia uh, last year, which was really cool. But again, it was just a tiny experiment. But I imagine a world of microverses around the world where through partnerships with nonprofits and governments, we can launch co-learning spaces. And, you know, it can be as small as four chairs, four computers, four desks, but it gives you this access to local community, to local infrastructure. And also it brings down this virtual kind of reality in our heads in our facebook ads that you can become a software engineer no matter where you're in the world it brings it down to the physical realities of the communities right like i think we're gonna have to go to like hybrid one way or another but i think it's more gonna be more in the direction of the co-learning space not so much in the direction of the school where everybody is learning the same thing from the same place fascinating i mean it's um it's a different reality out there if uh, education is going that way. But as you said, it's uh, a hybrid world, right? Uh, you're not going to change all learning, you know, forever, perhaps with with this model. But uh, just to 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 cap it up, so if I understand, a microverse coding bootcamp is around uh, ten months total, right? So that's what it there there is uh, there is variation. So the ninetieth percentile completion happens at uh, twelve months. Got it. So it's round about a year um, of, of investment. And with that, you uh, take people uh, who are successful into two to three times their local average salary. So it would seem like if you get selected and if you trust the micro versus selection process, it's a 
pretty interesting uh, thing to do if you can take the commitment. Is that is that the pitch? That is a really accurate way of putting it. And I think that part of if you can take the commitment is those layers that we're trying to remove one by one so that more people can uh, objectively afford uh, that level of commitment that we require. Ariel, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you for the amazing questions. I really enjoyed this conversation. Great. All right. Have a good day. You have just listened to a- another episode of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. If you're interested in trans projects or services, feel free to check out futurized.org store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of trans books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. You can also check out uh, more of Tron's projects at his website, trondodime.com. The topic of this episode of the podcast was free education until you start your career. In this conversation, we talked about trust, the essence of education, and about scaling learning. My takeaway is that we will always discuss what is at the heart of education and learning. It is an ever-evolving thing that humans care deeply about. How to organize it matters a lot especially in a resource-constrained environment. The need for scarce talent, particularly in engineering, is such that new business models are bound to be explored. Why would parents be the only group investing in educating talent? It might make more sense that governments, lenders, or employers invest, or that students invest in themselves, with collateral in their own IQ or career trajectory. It's an exciting future for young people if these opportunities globalize for every motivated student anywhere. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars, please. If you do like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 75 on the future of learning experience design. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes, and if so, do let us know. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.